Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 7. Let me remind you of where we are in the book. Chapters 1 to 3 develop the primary metaphors of marriage and family. That's where we get most of the biographical detail and narrative storytelling. Chapters 4 to 11 contain a lengthy indictment wherein God details all the sins and idolatries of Israel. And then the last section, running from chapter 12 through chapter 14, provides some historical illustrations and a call to authentic repentance. So here in chapter 7, we are right in the middle of this lengthy indictment of the nation of Israel. This chapter is filled with fascinating metaphors and analogies. And just as a sidebar, what else would we expect of God? Sometimes we forget, as it were, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Meaning, as Jesus said to Philip, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Well, Jesus, of course, was an excellent storyteller. He made his points very often by means of memorable little stories and parables. He was the master of the teaching metaphor. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I am the gate for the sheep. A sower went out to sow. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. That's a simile, of course, but you get the idea. Jesus was the master of the teaching metaphor. He told great stories. He was always illustrating and explaining by means of these very helpful comparisons and analogies. And so we shouldn't be surprised at all when we encounter this sort of thing in the Old Testament. So excuse the awkwardness of expression, but here is God acting very Jesus-like in the way that he presents this indictment of Israel. You could almost slip in a, you blind guides to the blind, you whitewashed tombs. This sounds very much like what Jesus said to the leaders of Judaism in Matthew 23. So here is God indicting the nation, specifically the leaders of the nation, in very colorful and pictorial language. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face." Most of the commentators treat verses 1 to 2 of chapter 7 as the proper ending to chapter 6, or at least as transitional material. Basically, God is saying that Israel doesn't really take his own sin seriously. He is too set in his ways and too closed off from counsel. And therefore, while God would prefer to heal, he is resolved to discipline. And then in verses 3 and following, he details some of what he has seen that confirms him in that assessment. Verse 3, by their evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. 
The scene here has shifted to the royal palace. Basically, God will describe the whole political scene as being a drunken, murderous gong show. Derek Kidner says here, Israel's last three decades were a turmoil of intrigue as one conspirator after another hacked his way to the throne, only to be murdered in his turn. Of the six men who reigned in those 30 years, four were assassins, and only one died in his own bed. Closed quote. So Israel, the people who were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, have descended into barbarism. They sound like a band of drunken, murderous Vikings. And worst of all, it appears that the priests and the prophets were the chief rabble-rousers. They stirred the political pot, so to speak, in order to steer events in the direction they believed best suited them. Verse 4. They are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Now, as I mentioned, the chief agitators here appear to have been the so-called religious leaders. David Allen Hubbard says here, They, there, and them point uniformly to the priests who stood at the center of the conspiracy. Closed quote. He goes on to say, Priestly participation in dynastic destruction was more an ingrained habit than a solitary lapse. Closed quote. So, the priests have left behind their duties in order to engage in the political sport of kingmaking, which is yet another reason for the coming season of discipline and scourging. Verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Here we get into some of the marvelous metaphors that make this passage so memorable and impactful. God says that Ephraim mixes with the people. He's like a cake not turned. This, of course, is a very colorful way of describing moral and theological compromise. This is like Jesus saying salt that has lost its saltiness. George Adam Smith says famously here, how better describe a half-fed people? a half-cultured society, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted policy than by a half-baked scone. Closed quote. The second metaphor in verse 9 describes a man who doesn't realize that he has passed his prime. His hair has gone gray, his strength has faded, and he knows it not. Like Samson, who awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Judges 16.20 So it is with Israel. 
They were too proud to see the truth that was staring them directly in the face. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Here the emphasis is on the irrationality and duplicity of Israel's political dealings. She was like a silly bird, flying here to Egypt and there to Assyria, thinking to play one monster against another, and always forgetting me, says the Lord. But I am the power he ought to have feared. I will spread a net over them and bring them down. I will discipline them, for they have strayed from me. I would prefer to be their redeemer. But at this point in their development, God says, they need imprisonment, punishment, and humiliation. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So Israel has become essentially pagan. They think like pagans. They act like pagans. They even pray like pagans. They wail upon their beds. They gash themselves like the prophets of Baal. They think to attract my attention by this silly and primitive display. But these sorts of prayers are only further evidence of their apostasy. You don't know me, God says. Although I trained you and raised you up here in Verse 15, he speaks as a father or as a, as a teacher. I raised you. I taught you to be a man. I showed you how to be strong. But you have turned against me. You are so far gone. You don't even know how to repent anymore. You think you are turning to me, but you don't even know where to find me. They return, but not upward. Daniel Carroll says here, Their idolatry is all-encompassing and all-consuming. Whatever beliefs Israel may have concerning Yahweh are seriously distorted and have brought them death and disaster. So they are broken and headed for disaster. They're like a twisted bow. When they find themselves in mortal danger, they will think to pull the trigger, we would say, but the gun will only explode in their faces. You will fall, God says and you will be derided in the land of slavery and exile. Sometimes the Old Testament feels foreign and further away from us than the New Testament. Some of that is probably due simply to historical, cultural, and linguistic distance. The Old Testament is a little harder to translate, and Hosea actually is considered one of the hardest of all Old Testament books to translate. Many of the expressions are out of use. Many of the cultural and historical references are obscure. But if you dig behind all of that, you will hear in these verses a very familiar message. Salt, 
that has lost its saltiness is good for nothing. That's what God is saying here. Just like Jesus said in Luke 14, 35, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When God's people begin to think, act, and even pray like their pagan neighbors, when the priests and the prophets, the spiritual leaders and the pastors abandon their commission and begin to dabble in politics and power, judgment and destruction are right around the corner. Not because God likes to judge. He would rather be the one who opens the door, not the one who shuts the door. Judgment is his strange work, his alien work. He would rather heal. But when God's people are no different than the nations, then God does what God has to do. He brings the whip. He brings the scourge. He prunes and he purifies. Not to kill, ultimately, but to save and eventually restore. That's who God is. He is a father who does what he must. He is a jealous husband who expects and demands our exclusive allegiance and affection. He is loyal, faithful, powerful, patient, and determined. And he makes that which he delights in. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 